Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 This podcast is brought to you by Sage Motion. Sage Motion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Sign up for a demo at sagemotion.com slash demo and write boom in the comment box. Are we unmuted? <laughs> barely. Just barely. <laughs> okay, well then, welcome to Boom. <laughs> I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today we had an amazing conversation with Professor Ahmed Chakar from Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland VA Medical Center and his student, Anna Smith, a former Case Western student and research assistant in Professor Tarkar's neuroprosthesis group. We discussed the importance of being open to feedback from all stakeholders for human-centered research, Mm -hmm. how you can translate that into holistic treatment strategies that are personalized to the individual user, and about the impactful neuroprostheses that integrate sensory abilities that are being developed by Ahmed's lab. It was so cool to hear from her highlighting her experience in learning that I don't know is a valid answer in research mm-hmm. and about just her experiences and insights and all the work that she's done. Yeah, it was such a fun combo of professor and mm-hmm. research assistant together. And I think that was just such an interesting perspective to have. So it was really fun for us. Yeah. Fun to have four people on the call. Fun to have four people on the call. Yeah, <laughs> we make it work. <laughs> but before we get started, we want to ask that if you enjoyed Boom, make sure to subscribe rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever the heck you listen to Boom and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. We are so grateful for our listeners and we wanted to give a special shout out to Rachel Richardson who reached out with the following note. She said, just wanted to say I'm a big big fan of your podcast. I love that you guys have informal conversations with experts in various research areas within our field. There's really nothing like this out there. So nice I can listen to something that's both entertaining and relevant to my field of study during my runs. Keep up the great work. So well, you keep running, Rachel. You keep running and we'll just keep talking. About <laughs> Hope you're on a run right now. <laughs> I love listening to podcasts on runs too. So can relate. And it's great that we can have this conversation with you while you're getting some exercise. <laughs> yes. And now let's do a little bit of boom. Let's do it. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. So I wanted to share a little bit of boom from a review article called Sensory Feedback for Limb Prostheses and Amputees. It was published in 2021 in Nature Materials by Ras Popovic and colleagues. And this, I think, just gives some additional cool background into mm-hmm. neuroprostheses, which we, which we talk about on the episode. And it's motivated by the fact that in the United States, every year, close to 250,000 lower limb amputations are performed, and about 16,000 are performed on upper extremities. Mm-hmm. And it really can be a, a traumatic event and impact one's health and quality of life. And sensory feedback restoration is able to enables amputees to understand the body environment interactions or the actual movement of the device, but many prostheses don't currently provide natural sensory information. So prostheses can impact or meet obstacles without the individual realizing Mm -hmm. it until it's too late and cause things like falls or 
other accidents. I know my grandma had a, a upper arm prosthesis, as we've talked about before. And I always joke about how she tended to give hugs just like <laughs> a little bit too hard, <laughs> having those like plastic fingers running into my ribs. But I think more dangerously, lower limb amputees can be subject to dangerous falls and mm. also struggle to maintain symmetry during walking and standing. Because sensing the ground is just such an important part of... Exactly, exactly. And they also might experience increased metabolic cost of normal Mm. physical activity, leading to fatigue and higher probability of heart failure with respect to non-amputees and also reduced mobility. So there's like this huge impact that prostheses can have when the prosthetic user can't actually interact and sense the environment. So in this article, they have a really nice figure. I won't go into too much detail, but they talk about different sensory feedback restoration devices that have been tested in humans, like self-contained neuromusculoskeletal prostheses that connect directly to the residual body through bone, nerves, and muscles, which is pretty awesome. Hmm. And they also share some sensory feedback restoration devices inspired by nature that help us understand this body environment interaction and actually inform the movement of the device as well. So you can check out the rest of the paper and the details by going to the link in the show notes. But they do conclude that an optimal device should be able to elicit natural sensations of touch or proprioception by delivering the complex signals to the nervous system that would be produced by skin, muscles, and joint receptors. Easy. So easy peasy. If if someone listening could just get going on that. Just do that. And then we'll do it tomorrow. Exactly. (laughs) But now we're excited to share some work of scientists who are actually leading these efforts to tackle some of these challenges. Today we have a special episode with two guests. So we are talking with Dr. Hamid Charkar, a research assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, who also holds an investigator position with the Advanced Platform Technology Center at Cleveland VA Medical Center. And we're also talking with Anna Smith, who was a student at Case Western and is now a research assistant in the neuroprosthesis group with Dr. Charkar. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you for inviting us. This is exciting. You can call me Hammond. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I'm super excited to talk with you guys. Yeah, we're really excited to have you with us. Anna reached out to us about the podcast and we've connected and learned more about their research group and all the amazing things they're doing. So we're super excited to be able to have this conversation now. Yeah, and we've had episodes with students and episodes with professors, but never one together. So it's the first of its kind of episode. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll start as we do all Boom episodes. When did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist? And we can each share your story. Let's start with Anna. Okay, yeah. So I've been fascinated by human movement for pretty much my whole life. Uh, I think part of that is I was an athlete and a student athlete. So I was a swimmer up until last year when I graduated. And I think that that really got me interested in how the body moves. And I started to look at the body as kind of like the most intricate puzzle of the world (laughs) and just how it can move together and you can see the different systems interact with one another. Mm. I love yeah, hearing the personal motivation and like being able to integrate what you're learning with how you actually behave. Yeah, definitely. And swimming too. There's a lot that goes on in swimming and it's a tough sport. So it's (laughs) cool to think about that from a biomechanics perspective and all the cool new, I think, swimming biomechanics studies going on with new underwater cameras and stuff too are really fascinating. So yeah, it's a cool start to your story. How about you, Heyman? 
So full disclosure, I'm not actually a biomechanist. So uh, <laughs> I am a electrical engineering by training, but I would like to consider myself a student in biomechanics. You know, I started as a double E and learned a lot about the circuits and how electrical currents and voltage can do different things at the rule governing on electrical circuits. And then I was like, well, you know, this is kind of getting too theoretical. Can I apply somehow some of these to human body? And that's how I discovered neuroengineering, which is basically how electrical signals communicate within our body. From that, I learned how these electrical signals can determine how we move. And that's how it gets connected to biomechanics. Since then, I've been learning a lot. That is something that I would like to share with your audience that as someone who doesn't have a formal background in biomechanics, uh, you can still learn a lot. And the goal here these days is to participate in multidisciplinary research, which uh, in our team, we do have people with background in kinesiology, uh, with uh, electrical engineering and even physical therapy and mechanical engineering. And all of us sit around a table and discuss ideas. And sometimes I'm just fascinating. I was like, oh, I did not know that. And they say, well, that is pretty basic in biomechanics. I was like, okay, I'm glad you told me that. <laughs> it helps when people point those things out, though, because... I also came from a non-engineering background into bioengineering biomechanics. I came from a biochemistry, more basic biology background. And it, it was like hard to know when, is this something like everybody just learned fundamentally? Or is this something I missed in the textbook? Like, so I think that's nice when people do kind of point those things out, even if it feels like, oh, well, I guess it's a fundamental thing. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the things that actually I've learned how to learn to talk the language that everyone that doesn't share my background can understand because, you know, as I said, in our group, we have people that don't have any engineering background. They're coming from clinical background. And sometimes we who are more accustomed to science and engineering jargon throw out acronyms and they say, wait, what, what is that? And we have to explain that. I remember one time, you know, we were discussing developing a graphical user interface in MATLAB, and we were saying, oh, yeah, let's develop that GUI, let's develop that GUI. And then someone <laughs> said, what is this a sticky thing that you're talking about? Like, actually, <laughs> it's not a sticky thing. It's an acronym. <laughs> and then we explained it to her. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Well, let's fast forward a little bit um, from that interest and starting to transition into neuroprosthesis to what you're currently doing in your lab. And Amit, could you share a little bit more about the different projects going on in your lab now? And then maybe you could elaborate more on what your role looks like in respect to those projects. And then Anna can speak a little bit more about what it's like from her perspective working on those projects. Sure. We call our lab Restoring Lower Limb Neural Connection. And we're mainly focused on when someone loses a limb or they have some sort of a neuromuscular disorder that affects lower limb. 
what happens to that sensory input? What happens to the neural connection that used to be there while we are walking, while we are maintaining our balance? And now it's gone. Either the limb got amputated and that pathway got disrupted, or you know, some sort of underlying condition causes that that communication gets weakened or it's not there. So we are pretty much focusing on that neural connection in the lower limb, specifically on the sensory aspects of it. And it's something that we take for granted because for example, when we are walking every day, right? Right now we are sitting in our chairs and we don't really think about what we feel through our feet unless something goes wrong, unless there is a bug on your feet and you immediately notice it. Otherwise, you don't pay that much attention. So a lot of processes happening in the background and the subconscious level, that circuitry is so well developed to alarm us, to do its job during locomotion, during maintaining balance, and also to alarm us when something goes wrong, when you come across an obstacle when you recover from slips and trips, right? And your body knows how to deal with that without you thinking so much, oh, am I supposed to put my foot forward? Am I supposed to adjust my hip? These all happening through a lot of elaborate reflex pathways in our body, we take that for granted. One of the common examples I often share with the students is that if you have a baby brother or sister, and they have Lego pieces on the floor, and you step on them, you immediately notice, you immediately withdraw your leg, and while the other leg extends, so your balance could be maintained, you don't fall down. And the amazing part about it is that the first thing comes to your mind is not how I should coordinate this movement. The uh, first thing is that you get angry at, at your uh, sibling <laughs> and said, who put this on the floor? And this circuitry is working all the time, helping us to maintain that balance, to maintain the gait patterns that allow us to navigate different terrains. We take it for granted. Obviously, when someone loses a limb, they receive a prosthesis, right? But that prosthesis is not connected to human body. I mean, if you think about it, we have made great advances in electronics. We have cell phones that pretty much do everything. And we know a great deal about biology. We have mRNA vaccines. We know about the genome and all that. But when it comes to interfacing electronics, robots, and human body, you still see interfaces that are not that much advanced. Look at the glasses we wear, right? The, the design of the glass hasn't changed over decades. And that's one of the examples of how these assistive devices have not changed, at least the way they interface with the body over years. The same goes for a prosthesis that we have these prostheses, even the newer generations have motors, they are, have sensors, but the way they connect to the body still goes through the socket, majority of them, and it's not really connects to the remaining physiological systems, including the nervous system. 
And that's the system that pretty much controls how we move and receives input from the environment. And that movement can be controlled based on that input. So that's what we work on in the lab, basically developing technology, developing assistive devices, specifically for the lower limb that connects to the nervous system. Mm. It's interesting, as you were saying that, it just reminded me of something that happened this morning, which is I was on a run, and I'm just kind of thinking about other things. And then next thing I know, you know, I step on the branch or like a, a tree root, and I'm rolling my ankle. And yeah, I'm just like, who put that root there? But also the things that my body does in response to that, well, my brain is just thinking, oh, no, but my body is like doing all these things to then protect from it. You know, I only feel this like stretcher that that's happening. But I could imagine that if you aren't having those sensations or feelings to be able to then compensate or have that reflex, that could lead to a lot of challenges with falls and, and other things like that. So yeah, it's really amazing to hear that you are working on that in such a complex problem that I'm sure as you're saying too, you have researchers from all different fields and really requires such a multidisciplinary look on that. Yeah, we'd be really interested to learn maybe in more detail, Anna, you can share what you're working on in particular, any particular techniques or methods that your lab is working on to start to get at some of these challenges. Yeah, so I don't necessarily work on the development side. So I'm interested in physical therapy in just that with a human movement. So I actually work with our physical therapists as well as our engineers And I'm working on developing an experiment that utilizes a relatively new instrument to us, which is an instrumented staircase. So we can get more information about forces while they're climbing the stairs. And one thing I'm learning is that gait in stairs is not an easy task to look at. There's a lot of factors. And one of the biggest factors being safety and making sure that we don't do anything that's dangerous Also, there's fatigue that's a huge problem. And one of the things that I'm most interested as I'm investigating this, because I'm really looking at, we've been able to provide sensation. So they can feel, to a certain extent, the bottom of their foot. But I'm looking at, what does that really provide them? So yes, they can feel something. But what does that mean as far as their functional movements? Are they changing? Are they learning? So I'm really looking at the motor learning over time. And there's going to be an initial change, they're going to feel something and they're going to like start adapting to that. So the more they use the device, there might be subtle changes in how they perform certain tasks. Mm. Are these mostly people who have had an accident and lost a limb? Like they might have had sort of the proprioception before and have a f- understanding of what that would feel like? Or are these also people who were maybe born without a limb or had to have it amputated at a very young age where this is all sort of new to them and does that impact their experience with starting with a a device like this? Yeah, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I am pretty sure that all of our subjects were traumatic or not even necessarily traumatic. I think there might be one or two diabetes, but especially working with the Veterans Hospital we focus on veterans. So largely our project is people that might have lost a limb because of active duty or things like that. So know what it used to feel Mm -hmm. like. 
And that's correct. Most of our subjects are traumatic amputees, meaning that they lost their limb in a motorcycle accident or due to blast injury. Actually, the first uh, participant in our study is a gentleman who lost his limb in Vietnam War many years ago. And when we implanted him with the technology we have and turned on the system, he was like, wow, I can feel my foot, I can feel my toes after so many years. So it is a very rewarding experience. But you touched on a very important subject that some people lose their limb due to trauma, but one of the conditions that affect lower limb and as a result, they cannot feel their limb is diabetes. And you know, diabetes affecting a lot of people, unfortunately, despite preventative measures, this is still growing. A lot of people get diagnosed with this condition and the condition gets worse through time. Because of the the regulation with the insulin and uh, what happens to the blood flow in the lower limb, the nerves that are most sensitive organs in the periphery, they get affected and they cannot feel their leg. It's called insensate foot. And as a result, they put too much pressure in their foot. And also there is some inflammation and poor blood supply to the tissue, and they often have ulcers. And these ulcers don't heal up, and eventually they have to lose the limb and they become amputated. So when you think about the sensory in the periphery, especially in the lower limb, one big aspect is people who lose the limb. But there are other conditions, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, that the clinical manifestation are actually sensory. People go to doctors and say, hey, doctor, I mean, I cannot feel my foot, or it's always a tingling in my foot. Or if you have grandparents, you might have heard that my feet are killing me, right? So this is a sensory manifestation that shows something else is going on. And that's the way our body let us know that, hey, it's a poor blood circulation. The nerves are pinched or do something because this is going to lead to more major consequences. And that's one of the areas that we are working as well, that it's good to get to people who got amputated, but also can we listen to these sensory cues and maybe develop a technology that can help people before they lose their limb? Yeah, that's huge. And I think where a lot of healthcare and health research is moving, right? How do we prevent some of these things? How how do we act earlier? How do we diagnose earlier? How do we do things earlier? So amazing that you are all thinking that way too, not just post, but before. I'm wondering, like Anna, you touched on this earlier with talking about the different populations and talking about even some of the challenges of doing this human-centered work. Things are dangerous, like how do you do these studies on in a thoughtful way. So it's clear you're working with participants to develop these devices. Do you have tips or best practices on how you gather feedback from members of the community, either during your studies or outside your studies? And then how do you actually translate that feedback into what you're developing? Anna, you can take a stab at that and then feel free to pass it on. Yeah. So the primary way that we're talking and getting feedback from users is our own users and asking them questions and also sometimes not asking them questions. So (laughs) 
I've learned that silence can be very helpful. So sometimes if you don't say anything and you kind of probe them for a little bit and then you give them space in different ways to let you know what's going on, where their head's at, we can actually learn a lot that way as well. And we can learn from, as we're looking at, we're looking at the human movement and what does that tell us about their subconscious responses. There's a lot of different ways to tackle getting feedback from users, but I definitely think there's a lot to be said for giving them space and just being open to the conversation. So putting yourself in front of the audience you're trying to help and hearing them out. (laughs) Yeah. Can you think of any specific times or are there any examples of times that you were really surprised by the feedback that you got from someone that you might not have otherwise expected or considered, but it has had an impact on your work in some way? It's hard for me to say. I have been able to experience meeting our subjects and spending time with them. But I will also say that we only get to meet them about once a month. So (laughs) I have a couple experiences, but not a lot. I would say I'm very surprised with how open they are. I think that at least personally, when I go through something traumatic, like losing a limb, I could not imagine myself wanting to like put that out there and be like, this is my experience. This is how I'm feeling. But they're very willing to do that, even with a student they just met. Yeah. I can add to that because actually, as I said, coming from a pure engineering background, I did not have any clinical experience. And during my PhD, I did a lot of rodent work, basically doing different electrode designs for brain-computer interface, measuring neural activity of the brain, but this was done mainly in rats. And then for postdoc, I decided to move to clinical work because I said, I want to see the impact of the research. I just don't want to do work with animals. So I joined the team in Cleveland. The lab was based in a medical center in a hospital. So one of the things that my supervisor told me from the get-go is go and attend amputee clinics. So it's basically a clinic that there is a PM&R doctor, physical medicine and rehab doctor, and prosthetist, PTs sit there once a week, and then they visit patients, right? The amputees come to them, complain about different issues they have. I went up there and sat there and uh, for the first couple of sessions, it was kind of awkward for me as an engineer. It's like, what am I doing here? And everything is so slow. And, you know, patients come in and they don't talk that much. But after spending a few sessions, I realized the value because you get to see things that as an engineer, you're not often exposed to. And you get to experience some of the issues that these people have. And that's the key really to identify the unmet need, right? We often develop technology as engineers because we think, oh, this is really cool to work on, especially for me. It's just, let's add this sensor, let's add this component. 
But when you talk to the end user, they say, well, this is nice, but it's not what I need, really. That's the experience that you don't get unless you sit down, you develop that patience, and you develop that mental capacity to take it in. One stakeholder, a big stakeholder, are the end users themselves, but also doctors and prosthetists, people who provide care are a big part of it, right? If we are developing a new monitoring system, a new prosthesis, but the doctor is not aware of it or they don't acknowledge the importance of it, it's going to sit on the shelf. It's not going to find its way to the end user. So it's very important to engage them. And we are lucky in our team, we have a surgeon, we have a PM&R doctor, we have physical therapist, and sometimes when we discuss ideas, they say, you want to do what? And then we explain to them that, okay, this is the experiment we are planning to do. It's sometimes amazing that the viewpoint they have and the question they ask are a type of question that I had never thought about. And I started thinking, I was like, well, that is a valid question. Why we are doing this and how much we have considered the comfort of the end user, the safety, you know, all of these things or the procedure we are doing is a surgical procedure. How much time we are adding to the time that the patient spends in the OR or if we are increasing the risk of infection. These are the things that the doctor thinks firsthand, but as an engineer, we don't. That's a very unique experience, and I encourage all the students who are not coming from a clinical background, if they have an opportunity to attend clinics, to interact with physicians, though it might not sound very interesting and it might not sound that they are using every second of their time, it is very helpful, and eventually it's going to pay off because it's an experience you need to be immersed in. And eventually you're going to come back to those moments. And you said, ah, I remember that patient visited the clinic and complained about the same issue. It might not happen immediately, but it's going to happen eventually as you work through developing the technology, as you come back and visit new ideas that, well, this is something we need to go back to the end user, to run focus groups, for example, to talk to these people and see if they even like it. And then we take it from there. Yeah, that's such a great and important point, I think. And and I like your point that starting with talking to the user, it's not the end of your feedback from the user at that point, right? You're not just getting some input and then running with it. It's still this continuous feedback loop and and continuously iterating and and getting a lot of different perspectives too and then sort of sifting through and finding the patterns or because everybody's different too right and something that might be a challenge for one person or they might not like another person might like so I'm sure it's also this balance of trying to find ways that are fit the needs of so many different people but can also maybe be adapted on more of a personalized level too. Melissa, I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the stage motion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Me too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes. 
Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team, too, directly in our personal demo. Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at sagemotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box and then let us know your ideas for using it. Another thing I'm curious about, I remember at the International Society of Biomechanics a couple years ago, we watched a very cool talk from Hugh Herr, who's at MIT and developing lower limb prosthesis that restored proprioception to the user. And we're curious, I guess, maybe what your research lab when you're developing these techniques, are you working with other labs that are also working on these same problems or are you trying different ways to tackle these challenges or sort of what is the approach when you know, there's multiple labs and research groups trying to tackle the same problems? That is a very important question, actually. And you're right. There are multiple groups that working on restoring sensation, either proprioception or some sort of somatosensation to the lower limb. Huher at MIT is uh, one of the big groups. They developed the approach called AMI, and uh, it's mainly a surgical approach that provides users with proprioception. But I think the solution to this big problem is not a one solution fits all, right? Uh, We are working on the same problem, but we are coming at it from different angles. And maybe the ultimate solution would be a combination of the multiple approaches because they had success with restoring proprioception, but their technique is still, you know, there are some questions that how it's going to apply to people who previously lost a limb. I know they had some success with people that are about to undergo amputation, so it works. Also, how much is the downtime? Because if someone is a regular user of a prosthesis and you say, I'm going to give you sensation, but you have to be off your prosthesis for two months, often amputees are very active people. They have jobs, you know, and if you cannot wear your prosthesis, that's going to be a big issue and would uh, prevent them from taking advantage of the technology because they say, no, I cannot afford being off my prosthesis for too long, then it doesn't matter how good your technology is. It's just that the burden is so high that they say no. And there are other groups. Actually, there is a group in uh, Europe at EPFL that they have also peripheral interfaces to the residual limb, and they have shown success. There is a group in Pittsburgh that they have a interface with the spinal cord. That is also very interesting. We do collaborate with some of these groups. We are very open, actually, and I'm using this platform to say we're very open if anyone's interested in collaboration, either if they're developing a technology, if they're working on the same problem, or they have work with the amputee population and they're interested to see how their training techniques or the tools that they have would apply to this specific platform and technology. There is also another area, I don't know if you're aware or your audience are aware, it's called osseointegrated prosthesis. Basically the same concept that you have for implants, for tooth, You can have the same concept for prosthesis, right? You can have a rod 
inserted into remaining bones and then there is an abutment remain that comes out of the body and then prosthesis attaches to that it's very much like you have the implant and the crown for the tooth you can have the same thing for the prosthesis and then because there is a bone interface there is a, something called osseoperception that is not widely known or at least not carefully examined so we are also working on that area it says again it's not like that you have an ultimate solution that can fit every amputee or every person getting affected by the musculoskeletal problems in the lower limb. But some people might benefit from osseointegration. Some people might benefit from Amy. Some people might benefit from our nerve-based approach. But I don't see a reason why we cannot develop a holistic approach that a lot of these different techniques could be combined together and we provide the best technology and best care to people who have lost a limb. Mm. And I love that like you both have sort of talked about this openness that you need to have to feedback input from users in order to even begin to think about a holistic approach, right? You need to have that openness first and then you can start to implement something that's more personalized. And I think that's a huge lesson and takeaway that I'm hearing mm -hmm. from all of your experiences and wonderful things that you've shared so far. Exactly, because it's in academia, the important part is to publish papers, get more grants and kind of get the promotion, get the tenure. But being in a hospital and interacting with end users also remind you that we are in it for a bigger reason. And if we cannot do something that benefits the amputee population benefits the end user, it doesn't really matter how many papers you publish because if you can change someone's lives, that's the ultimate goal. And that's a good thing being in an interdisciplinary group because you are constantly reminded that there are things that matter the most and that we have to kind of keep that and focus all the time. Wow. I mean, yeah, I love that. And I think that's a good reminder of just grounding us as researchers and scientists and, you know, humans mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that we all, I know our audience will appreciate and that Melissa and I really appreciate. Sort of going off of this openness and some learnings maybe from it, I'm curious, there are probably a lot of students and people that are listening that maybe haven't gotten to do a research experience yet. So Anna, I'm wondering if you could share maybe some learnings you've had from your research experience, maybe ones that you thought you might not be able to get from a classroom and also just any tips you might have for someone wanting to enter into a research experience themselves. Yeah, I guess I'll start with getting involved in research. I found that you just kind of have to insert yourself. In <laughs> so really just ask people and if they don't respond, they're busy. They have a lot on their minds. You can ask them again. They're not going to be mad mostly. I won't make any promises for everyone, but all the scientists and researchers I've worked with are super open and they're really excited and dedicated by what they're doing or to what they're doing. And they want to talk to you. They want your help. They want to know what you're interested in and that kind of thing. As far as like what I've learned from this experience and what I've gained, I've learned a lot and I wouldn't even know where to begin. I could talk like the entire hour about lessons I've learned, but I would say the biggest thing I've learned that I definitely didn't get from a classroom is accepting I don't know as an answer to questions. Mm. 
So sometimes I'm getting it. I'll ask a question. I'll get, I don't know, as a response. And sometimes I'll even go further. I'll look into the research and I'll see, like, I'm trying to find an answer what's out there. And the truth is, is there's just more questions than there are answers. And by that, I mean satisfactory answers. So you really just have to get used to existing in a world where you just can't always have an answer or a right answer. Yeah. I would like to add to that because this is very important to me. And also in our group, we are trying to emphasize on this, that sometimes uh, undergrads uh, or new graduate students enter the group and they feel intimidated. They feel that, oh, there are postdocs in the group. There are senior PhDs that sometimes might not be the nicest people in the lab based on how much progress they're making in their thesis. And there's the PI and uh, who am I to ask the question or who am I to propose an idea, right? Really, the big goal is everyone has a voice at the table. If you're an undergrad, if you're a rising sophomore, yes, you don't know a lot of the background, you don't know a lot of the jargons, but you still have a sharp mind and you can think. And that's what matters, right? That's what matters. And you can look at the problem and see some issues or bring up some concerns that we might have dismissed, we might have ignored because we are too close to this problem. And you say, how about we position this story in a different way? Or how about we also collect this data? Or how about we ask the subject to prime them somehow before they start the experiment? So, and we can discuss that. I'm not saying all the ideas are like wow and breakthroughs, but some of the ideas are, are pretty good and people should not feel intimidated that, well, I don't know much. I am just an undergrad student. I'm supposed to do what I'm told because that mentality is not going to set you up to be an independent thinker, to be a researcher in the future. You just need to be bold, brave enough and say, hey, if I am part of the team, I would like to participate in the discussions and I would like to get an answer, even if my idea doesn't make sense. Then it's the responsibility of the PI and senior staff members to make time and explain and say, well, yes, you're right, or maybe your idea doesn't make sense because of these reasons. But it's always good to have that discussion and debate and people don't feel intimidated by that hierarchy that often exists in academia, that my knowledge compared to the person who has a PhD is so inferior that I should not ask a question. Yeah, exactly. I've been reflecting on this with my advisor since the end of grad school, and he mentions how my confidence has, as a scientist has improved over that time. And when I reflect over why that's the case, it's never because, oh, now I know so many things. I feel so much more confident. It's just that I feel more comfortable not knowing things, realizing that I can learn them or figure them out or ask questions, especially ask questions and talk to other people and put myself in that vulnerable position where I'm like, I know that you know more and I know, know little about this topic, and but I want to know more and just 
leaning into curiosity versus feeling that discomfort of of admitting that you might not know something or yeah i guess that you just need help understanding it and i think that's something that once you kind of change that mindset or perspective on that it really changed everything for me so thank you for touching on that really important point well, I think we're going to, I can't believe, I feel like we could talk forever. And I love that you said like you could talk for an hour on all your learnings. I could talk to you guys for more than that on all of the interesting things you're doing. But I think we're going to start to kind of wrap up with our last two questions for the interview. And we'll do kind of the same Anna and then Hanin can answer. The first is, can you tell us about a time when you feel like you failed and what you learned from it? Yeah, so I... I have felt like I failed like almost every day I walk out of the lab. I'm like, what did I do? I guess what I've started to learn and recognize as I reflect on the fact that I feel like that almost every day is that <laughs> I really like to dive in head first. And I like to think, I'm going to do this project. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to write this code. No one does that in a day. <laughs> so research and science is not a daily task you cannot cross it off your to-do list each day and go home (laughs) so (laughs) I've really been working on just setting reasonable expectations for myself and being a part of the process and letting it be a process for me I don't like to call it failure really I would like to call it when things don't go according to the plan Mm -hmm. (laughs) being in clinical research that's as Anna said it's almost a daily basis right because you work with humans and there are so many factors involved that you cannot control and things might go just way different yeah, humans working with humans. Yeah, it's like exactly. Double the... <laughs> what can go wrong? Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Again, bringing some engineering techniques into it, I do like to do a root cause analysis to understand. We came up with a plan. We came up with an expectation. It's really, again, going back to developing the hypotheses, right? You think that, okay, things are supposed to happen a certain way, That is basically a hypothesis. And then things don't go that way. And it turns out that your hypothesis to a certain degree was not right. So it's important to do a root cause analysis to understand why things went wrong. But there are also important factors that I have learned over time to kind of develop a sense of humor about uh, when things go wrong. It's okay. And that... uh, Kind of joking about it or laugh about it allows you to take a step back and reflect better as opposed to stressing yourself or pointing finger and say, oh, you did this thing wrong and, you know, this is this person's fault. It's important to have that sense of humor as a team to know it is okay to fail because it's research, right? If it was supposed to succeed all the time, we would not be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is something that I've learned when I was a graduate student and I still deal with it as a faculty regularly that accepting failure is hard. And that is something that I often remind the students because like Anna, like yourselves, a lot of students who go to grad school are A students, are very sharp, talented students. And 
during undergrad, they are not trained to deal with failure. They're used to ace their classes, you know, they they were getting top grades and they come to research and they design an experiment and boom, they look at the data and it doesn't make sense. And they get frustrated. Sometimes they question their decision. They say, am I in the right track? Am I doing the right thing going to grad school? So I think it's very important to remind them that failure is part of the learning. You take a step back and you learn, and it's okay if you didn't get it right the first time. So that training, that learning that it's okay to fail, it is something that I think is missing from the undergrad, at least class environment. Students getting more involved in research, they get an appreciation for it because that's how the real world looks like. Yeah, it's so true. And I think it also can go back to training even from a much younger age, but also through grad school. It's like we don't get rewarded for trying and failing, right? We get rewarded for things going well, and then you put the value in things going well, and then things don't go well in grad school, and you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm a failure, and I shouldn't be doing this because it's not going right, and it can be really tough, but if from a younger age, we start to be able to build that resilience and understanding that this doesn't define who you are as a person. And instead, it's you know incredible that you're trying these things, you're getting up when you fall down, and you're learning from it and being even better the next time. I think these are all important things that it would be amazing to implement in school and in other places in life before, definitely before <laughs> grad school. <laughs> yeah. So how can people follow you in your work if they want to learn more about it? I am on LinkedIn. They can email me. Email is the best way. My email actually, hamid at case.edu. Now that we have Zoom and these virtual platforms, if someone's interested and they have questions, if time allows, I would be happy to arrange, you know, Zoom conversations and uh, we chat a little bit. If they are in Cleveland area, I would love to invite people to visit the lab, actually, and see firsthand what we are doing. But yeah, LinkedIn, email, any sort of follow-up, either via Zoom or in person, I'm open to it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm from uh, the Akron area in Ohio. Oh, so I'm um, okay. Family yeah, you should definitely by. visit. <laughs> I also have a LinkedIn page and I'm happy to respond to anyone that has questions about first getting involved or even if they just want to rant about the fact that they're not getting responses when they're trying to get involved. Uh, (laughs) I'm happy to hear it. I went through it and I totally get it. Yeah, that's so nice to hear. Thank you for offering that because I think sometimes it's just nice for students to not feel alone in that process and to talk to other people who have gone through the same thing and know that it just, you know, one no or a few no's isn't the end. It's normal. Yeah, it's totally normal. And there's still so many opportunities out there. So thank you for sharing that. And as our last question, Anna, maybe you could start first about what you're most excited about for the future of biomechanics. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see some of the technology get more involved in the clinic. So I'm super excited to see this translation. I think there's a growth of specifically in physical therapy using biomechanics as a tool, particularly with force plates, but I think there's a lot more beyond force plates that's going to start entering the clinic and 
being a part of clinical practice. Awesome. Yeah, that's super exciting. How about you, Eamon? Yeah, I think for me, it's really redefining the concept of disability, right? If someone loses a limb or they have a condition that doesn't allow them to walk or maintain their balance, they can use assistive technology that is well integrated into their body and really bridging that gap between assistive technology, artificial limb, and natural limb, right? So if they receive a prosthesis, they don't say, well, I have a prosthesis. They say, no, I my actual limb was not working. So I have a limb that works pretty much as well as the natural limb. So that is the goal. And that's what we would like to get to. And if that happens, then really we are changing that concept, who is disabled versus who is not. And they should not feel that they're restricted in what they can do and what limits they can push based on that disability. And I'm very excited because there has been so many technological advances. As you mentioned, there are multiple groups that now are working in this specific area. There are new breaking news coming out of the contribution of the sensory and how we can augment the sensation through the lower limb. And hopefully that translates and a lot of people can benefit from the outcomes of this technology. Mm -hmm. Yes, completely. You should, that reminds us of our mobility series, which we did, I think last year at this time. And also the book by Sarah Hendren, who's also featured in our series, and she it's called What Can a Body Do? And it's all about this idea of we only have disability because we have such a rigid, inflexible built world. But if we can redefine that, I love to hear that. We love to hear that. And we love that you guys are living that, you know, living and breathing that in the work that you do every day. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And keep doing the amazing, impactful work that you're doing. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being on. It's been an awesome conversation. We're really grateful for you taking the time to do that. And we can't wait for our listeners to learn from you. Yeah, happy to share. Wow, what an amazing interview with two great humans. Two awesome humans. Two awesome humans. We'd like to thank... Four awesome humans. Four. (laughs) Oh, shucks. Uh, We'd like to thank Hamid and Anna for taking the time to be on Boom. If you enjoyed the interview and learned something from this episode, make sure to let us know and share this episode with someone that you think would find value in it. Before we wrap up, though, we'll share a quick research fail. Research fails. Yes, it does. Hannah, do you have a fail to share? I do. I do. It, I'll try to make it quick because basically it's it's pretty sad. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not related to research at all, but related to communication, which I think is a big part of research. So, like, if you can't communicate your research, then what are you doing? You know? Yeah, it's true. And knowing what your story is, I just am so amazed by you that you just found a connection. (laughs) So I was at a restaurant ordering a drink, and I don't typically drink alcoholic drinks. So I was excited to see they had something called a no-hito with Mm -hmm. an N. No mm-hmm. hito on the menu. And so I just said, could I have the pineapple no hito? And they come back with a drink that does not look like pineapple-y, but looks like a mojito. And I take a sip. And I'm like, wow, the like tonic water in this tastes really weird. Wow, yeah. And then 
I got through about half the drink. It took me a half the drink to realize it was not the tonic water that tasted weird. It was just straight tequila. It was the tequila. (laughs) Yeah, that was in your drink. Okay. After telling the wait staff this, they insisted that this drink had no alcohol in it. There was no real way to prove it. Like, I couldn't say, can you take a drink drink of this? But long story short, they brought me a second drink. And they... I did have to pay for both, which was kind of weird, I thought. And a lesson, that is weird. The real fail in this whole story is that I didn't stand up for myself. Oh. And I just well, you know if I both. was there, I would have been. You would have done it. I... That's why we have good friends. Because you deserve the no-hito that you asked for. And I would have been there to drink your mojito. I know. You would have helped with both problems. And that's why you should never go out to eat without me. This is a That's lesson, a real this lesson, is a lesson for all of you. Never go anywhere fun without Melissa or else you'll run into problems. Uh, it's true. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for... I thought you were talking to me. <laughs> I was like, that was a very aggressive way to tell me that. But... <laughs> You're welcome. So thank you for listening to me. And thank the rest of you for listening to us. <laughs> And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, for all of their support. And Peter Washington for being our friend and giving us some awesome music that you hear. If you want to submit a research fail, person to interview, get involved, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And be sure to check out our Boom YouTube channel as well. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics off our minds. minds.